The prophet Jacob asked, Why not speak of the Atonement of Christ and attain to a perfect knowledge of Him? I take that question as the subject of my talk. Why not speak of the Atonement of Jesus Christ? Alma refers to the Atonement as the great plan of happiness. I shall use that phrase to describe the beautiful doctrine we know as the Atonement of Jesus Christ. President Hubie Brown once declared, Sooner or later, life's vicissitudes bring each of us to grips with this important subject of the immortality of the soul and man's relationship to deity. Each of us, regardless of color, creed, or nationality, has a rendezvous with the experience that we call death." Most of us in sorrow and loss have reverently stood at the grave of a loved one and asked the question, Is there any happiness in death? A Book of Mormon prophet answers this question for us with joyful expressions of thanksgiving for the Atonement of Jesus Christ, which ransoms us from death. And, O oh, the wisdom of God, His mercy and grace, O oh, the greatness and the justice of our God. Let me share with you five truths of the great plan of happiness that have brought this kind of joy to me. First, a knowledge of the plan confirms that there is a God, and He has a Son, Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son are perfect. They live in heaven, and they possess glorified bodies of spirit, flesh, and bones. These truths were revealed to us in this dispensation when the boy Joseph Smith knelt in humble prayer and later declared, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Second. Knowing the identity of the Father and the Son helps us know that all of us are placed on earth to acquire a physical body, gain experience, and prove ourselves worthy to return to our Heavenly Father. Laws govern our mortal life on earth. When we transgress the law, we sin. When we sin, we break eternal laws, and the law of justice requires a penalty or a punishment. Sin and the need to repent might be represented by a man who takes a journey. On his back is a large empty bag. From time to time he picks up a rock representing the transgression of a law. He places the rock in the bag on his back. Over time the bag becomes full. It is heavy. The man cannot continue on his journey. He must have a way to empty the bag and remove the rocks. This can only be done by the Savior through the Atonement. This is possible when we exercise faith in Jesus Christ, forsake sin, and make covenants through the ordinances of the gospel. As we faithfully endure to the end, we can then return to live with our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Third. Through the infinite Atonement, God has provided a means whereby we can both overcome our sins and become completely clean again. 
This is made possible by the eternal law of mercy. Mercy satisfies the claims of justice through our repentance and the power of the Atonement. Without the power of the Atonement and our complete repentance, we are subject to the law of justice. Alma taught that mercy claimeth the penitent and that the plan of redemption could not be brought about only on conditions of repentance. The great prophet Amulek taught, and thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of safety, while he that exercises no faith unto repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. Therefore, only unto him that has faith unto repentance is brought about the great and eternal plan of redemption. Adam and Eve, our first parents, transgressed law and were cast out of the beautiful Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were taught the great plan of salvation that they might find happiness in this life. Adam said, For because of my transgression, my eyes are opened, and in this life I shall have joy, and in the flesh I shall see God. Eve uttered a similar acclamation of happiness. Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed and never should have known good and evil and the, and the joy of our redemption. Fourth, the fall of Adam and Eve brought about two deaths. We are subject to those deaths. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the physical body. Because of the fall of Adam, all mankind will suffer physical death. The second death is spiritual. It is separation from God's presence. Adam and Eve freely conversed with God in the Garden of Eden. After their transgression, they lost that privilege. Thereafter, communication from God came only through faith and sacrifice, combined with heartfelt petitioning. Currently, we are all in the state of spiritual death. We are separated from God. He dwells in heaven. We live on earth. We would like to return to Him. He is clean and perfect. We are unclean and imperfect. The power of Christ's Atonement overcame both deaths. Following His crucifixion and burial in a borrowed tomb, Christ was resurrected on the third day. This resurrection reunited Christ's physical body with His Spirit. The resurrection from the dead is the most beautiful aspect of the Atonement and truly a part of the plan of happiness. The resurrection is universal and applies to the entire human family. We will all be resurrected. I bear testimony of that fact and truth. This is an unconditional gift from God. But to be resurrected does not overcome the second death. To gain eternal life and live in the presence of the Father and the Son, we must repent and become eligible for mercy, which will satisfy justice. The revelations teach this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Do not procrastinate the day of your repentance. That same Spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that ye go out of this life, that same Spirit will have power to possess your body 
in that eternal world. Fifth, Jesus Christ was born of an earthly mother, Mary. From her he inherited mortality and became subject to death. Joseph was his earthly mentor. God in heaven was his father. From him he inherited immortality, the power to overcome physical death. As the one who was chosen to fulfill the requirements of the Atonement, Jesus Christ condescended to come to earth and be born as a helpless babe to Mary. He condescended to be tempted, tried, mocked, judged, and crucified, even though he had power and authority to prevent such actions. President John Taylor described the condescension of Christ in these beautiful words. It was further necessary that he should descend below all things in order that he might raise others above all things. For if he could not raise himself and be exalted through those principles brought about by the Atonement, he could not raise others. He could not do for others what he could not do for himself." Christ's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane epitomizes the most magnificent of all the attributes of Christ, his perfect love. Here we see that he truly loved all of us. An English theologian writing in the 19th century said of this event, All that the human frame can tolerate of suffering was to be heaped upon his shrinking body. Pain in its acutest sting, shame in its most overwhelming brutality, all the burden of sin, this was what he must now face. Describing his suffering, the Lord said in modern revelation, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. The Atonement is an event that enables us to be reconciled to God. The Atonement, or at one meant, means to restore or to come back. In terms of family, it means to be reunited with one another and with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. It means sadness through separation will become happiness through reuniting. In conclusion, I share the words of President Boyd K. Packer. If you understand the great plan of happiness and follow it, what goes on in the world will not determine your happiness. End quote. I bear testimony of that truth and of the love that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has shown for us by providing the Atonement, the great plan of happiness for all of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brothers and sisters, Not many weeks ago, I had both my knees surgically replaced. So when I say that I'm grateful to be able to stand before you today, it's no idle statement. During this recruitative period, 
I have been reminded of how blessed we are to know of the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am overwhelmed when I think about the pain and the suffering He went through for us in Gethsemane and on the cross. How He endured it, I cannot comprehend. But I thank Him, and I love Him more profoundly than words can express. I also thank President Hinckley for the privilege of being with him at the birthplace of the Prophet Joseph. Because of Joseph Smith, we have been given much. Were it not for the Restoration, we would not know the true nature of God our Heavenly Father or our own divine nature as His children. We would not understand the eternal nature of our existence or know that families can be together forever. We would not be aware that God continues to speak to His prophets in our day, beginning with the marvelous first vision wherein the Father and the Son appeared to the Prophet Joseph. We would not have the comforting assurance that we are led by a prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley. Without the Restoration, we would likely be under the assumption that the entirety of God's Word is found in the Bible. As precious and wonderful as that book of Scripture is, we would not know of the Book of Mormon and other Latter-day scriptures that teach eternal truths which help us draw near to our Heavenly Father and the Savior. Without the Restoration, we would not have the blessings of priesthood ordinances that are valid in time and eternity. We would not know the conditions of repentance, nor would we understand the reality of the Resurrection. We would not have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. When we truly understand how great a blessing the gospel of Jesus Christ is in our lives, when we accept and embrace the eternal truths that allow them to sink deep into our hearts and souls, we experience a mighty change in our hearts. We are filled with love and gratitude. As the prophet Alma wrote, we feel to sing the song of redeeming love to all who will hear it. Oh, that I were an angel, Alma said, and could have the wish of mine heart that I might go forth and speak with the trump of God, with a voice to shake the earth and cry repentance unto every people. Yea, I would declare unto every soul the plan of redemption, that they should repent and come unto our God that there might not be more sorrow upon the face of the earth. So it should be with us, my brothers and sisters. Our love for the Lord and appreciation for the restoration of the gospel is all the motivation we need to share which gives us much joy and happiness. It is the most natural thing in the world for us to do, and yet far too many of us are hesitant to share our testimonies with others. All around the world, missionaries are responding to this testimony-driven joy in sharing the gospel. Many of them are entering the MTC with their own marked and well-studied copies of the missionary guide, Preach My Gospel. I am pleased to report 
that the use of Preach My Gospel, they are increasingly able to teach in their own words by the power of the Spirit and are better able to adjust their lessons to the needs of those whom they are teaching. As a result, they are having meaningful impact on many lives. But quite frankly, what they need now is more people to teach. Experience has shown that the best teaching situations develop within our members when they participate in finding and teaching process. This is nothing new. You have heard it before. Some of you may even feel guilty that you are not giving as much help to the missionaries. Today, I invite you to relax and set aside your concerns and focus instead on your love for the Lord, your testimony of, the, of His eternal reality, and your gratitude for all He has done for you. If you are truly motivated by love and testimony and gratitude, you will quite naturally do all that you can to assist the Lord in bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of our Father's children. In fact, it would be impossible to keep you from doing it. The Savior Himself showed us the way when He invited His disciples to come and see where He dwelt, and they abode with Him. Why do you suppose He did that? The scriptural record does not explain His reasoning, but I am confident that it, was, it had nothing to do with comfort or convenience. As always, he was teaching, and what better way to teach his followers than to invite them to visit with him so they could see and experience his magnificent message firsthand? Similarly, our homes can be gospel sharing homes. As people we know and love come into our homes and experience the gospel firsthand in both word and action. We can share the gospel without holding a formal discussion. Our families can be our lesson, and the spirit that emanates from our homes can be our message. Having a gospel-sharing home will not only be a blessing for those we bring into our homes, but for those who live within it. By living in a gospel-sharing home, our testimonies become stronger and our understanding of the gospel improves. The Doctrine and Covenants teaches that we can be forgiven of our sins when we help someone else repent. We find joy in helping others come unto Christ and feel the redemptive power of His love. Our families are blessed as, they, as the testimonies and faith of both parents and children increase. In gospel-sharing homes, we pray for guidance for ourselves, and we pray for the physical and spiritual well-being of others. We pray for the people the missionaries are teaching, for our acquaintances and for, for those not of our faith. In the gospel-sharing homes of Alma's time, the people would join in fasting and mighty prayer in behalf of the welfare of the souls of those who knew not God. Creating a gospel-sharing home is the easiest and most effective way that we can share the gospel with others. 
And we are not just talking about traditional homes with families consisting of two parents living with their children. College students can create a gospel-sharing home when they adorn the walls of their apartments with pictures and reflection of spiritual pursuits instead of the things of the world. Older couples and single members can exemplify a gospel-sharing home when they welcome new neighbors and invite them to attend church and visit them in their homes. A gospel-sharing home is one in which neighborhood children love to play, making it natural to invite them and their family to attend church, a family home evening, or some other activity. Teenagers visiting a gospel-sharing home feel comfortable asking questions or participating with the family in prayer. Gospel-sharing homes are very ordinary. They may not always be spotlessly clean nor the children perfectly behaved, but they are a place in which family members clearly love each other and the Spirit of the Lord is felt by those who visit. As we talk about what a gospel-sharing home is, perhaps it would also be helpful to identify some things that a gospel-sharing home is not. A gospel-sharing home is not a program. It is a way of life. Creating a gospel-sharing home means inviting our friends and neighbors into the ongoing flow of family and Church activities. As we invite our friends to join us for these activities, they will also feel the Spirit. Creating a gospel-sharing home does not mean that we are going to have to dedicate large amounts of time to meeting and cultivating friends with whom to share the gospel. These friends will come naturally into our lives, and if we are open about our membership in the Church from the very beginning, we can easily bring gospel discussions into the relationship with very little risk of being misunderstood. Friends and acquaintances will accept that this is part of who we are, and they will feel free to ask questions. A gospel-sharing home is not defined by whether or not people join the Church as a result of our contact with them. Our opportunity and responsibility is to care, to share, to invite, and then to allow individuals to decide for themselves. We are blessed when we have invited them to consider the Restoration, regardless of the outcome. At the very least, we have a rewarding relationship with someone from another faith, and we can continue to enjoy their friendship. In a gospel-sharing home, we do not just pray for the health, safety, and success of our missionaries throughout the world. We also pray for our own missionary experiences and opportunities to be prepared to act on those impressions as they come our way. And I promise you, they will come. Twelve years ago, I suggested that the key to successful member missionary work is the exercise of faith. One way to show your faith in the Lord and His promises is to prayerfully set a date to have someone prepared to meet with the missionaries. I have received hundreds of letters from members 
who have exercised their faith in this simple way, even though families had no one in mind with whom they could share the gospel, they set a date, prayed, and then talked to many more people. The Lord is the Good Shepherd, and He knows His sheep who have been prepared to hear His voice. He will guide us as we seek His divine help in sharing His gospel. A sister in France was asked about the secret of her success. She said, I simply share my joy. I treat everyone as if they were already a member of the Church. If I am standing by someone in a line and strike up a conversation, I share with them how much I enjoyed my Church meetings on Sunday. When co-workers ask, What did you do this weekend? I do not skip from Saturday night to Monday morning. I share with them that I went to Church, what was said, and my experiences with the Saints. I talk about how I live, think, and feel. In a gospel-sharing home, our personal missionary effort is a topic of family councils and discussions. One faithful family counseled together on the need for each family member to be an example. Later, the son's high school coach, who was not a member, sent a donation to the Church. Why? because this young man had expressed, impressed him with his courage in speaking up and telling his teammates to clean up their language. There are thousands of experiences that could be shared where people have joined the Church because of the spirit and attitude they observe in the lives of those who come from gospel-sharing homes. Church literature or DVDs can introduce new friends to the Church. Invitations to hear a family member speak in sacrament meeting or to attend a baptismal service of a family member or to tour a meeting house will have been very much appreciated by those who are not members. From every indicator we have, there is nothing more effective that any of us can do for our friends than to say, Come and see, by joining with us in sacrament meeting. Far too many do not know they are welcome to worship with us. Of course, all of us support the ward leaders and assist in making the ward mission plan effective. Whatever our Church calling may be, we help priesthood and auxiliary leaders assist missionaries, welcome and involve visitors, and fellowship new members. You can ask the missionaries to show you their daily planners so you can see how you can best help them accomplish their goals. Working together, the spirit of our gospel-sharing homes will overflow in our chapels, in our classrooms, and our cultural halls. I bear testimony that if we will just do some of these simple things, the Lord will lead us to find tens of thousands of Heavenly Father's children who are ready to be taught the gospel. Our love for the Lord, our appreciation for His atoning sacrifice, and His mission to have all come unto Him should provide all the motivation we need to be successful 
in sharing the gospel. May the Lord bless you, my brothers and sisters, with a greater faith and trust in Him as you reach out now to introduce the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of the world, to which I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, I thank you for your prayers in my behalf. I now pray for your sustaining faith. When a man reaches my age, he pauses now and again to reflect on what has led him to his present status in life. I feel to indulge upon your time in what might be regarded as a selfish manner. I do so because the life of the President of the Church really belongs to the entire Church. He has very little privacy and no secrets. <laughs> My talk this morning will be different from any I think previously heard in the general conferences of this Church. I now face the sunset of my life. We are all totally in the hands of the Lord. As many of you know, I recently underwent major surgery. It is the first time in my 95 years that I have been a patient in a hospital. I do not recommend it to anyone. My doctors say that I still have some residual problems. I'm now approaching my 96th birthday. I take this opportunity to express appreciation and gratitude for the remarkable blessings the Lord has showered upon me. We all face choices in the course of our lives, some of them with a siren song of wealth and prosperity. Others appear less promising. Somehow the Lord has watched over and guided my choices, although it was not evident at the time. There come to mind the words of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, which concludes with these lines. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I think of the words of the Lord, Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. It was 48 years ago at this April conference that I was first sustained as a general authority. Since that time, I have spoken in every general conference of the Church. I have given well over 200 such talks. I have dealt with a great variety of subjects, but running through all has been a dominant thread of testimony of this great Latter-day work. But things have changed and are changing. My beloved companion of 67 years left me two years ago. I miss her more than I can say. She was really a remarkable woman, one with whom I walked side by side in perfect companionship for more than two-thirds of a century. 
As I look back upon my life, I do so with a measure of wonder and awe. Everything good that has happened, including my marriage, I owe to my activity in the Church. I had occasion the other evening to review an incomplete list of societies and organizations that have honored me, all because of my activity in the Church. The Presidents of the United States, a substantial number of them, have come to the office of the Presidency of the Church. I have on my office wall a photograph of my presenting a Book of Mormon to President Ronald Reagan. In my bookcase is the Presidential Medal of Freedom given to me by President Bush. I've been to the White House on a number of occasions. I have hosted and mingled with prime ministers and ambassadors of many nations, including Prime Ministers Margaret Thatcher and Harold Macmillan of the United Kingdom. I have known and worked with every president of the Church, from President Grant down to Howard W. Hunter. I have known and loved all of the general authorities through these many, many years. I am now trying to deal with the many books and artifacts that I have accumulated over the years. In the course of this process, I found an old journal with sporadic entries from the years 1951 to 1954. At that time, I was a counselor in my state presidency and had not yet been called as a general authority. As I read through this old journal, I recall with appreciation how, through the kindness of the Lord, I came to know very intimately and well all of the First Presidencies and members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Such an opportunity could not now be had by anyone because the Church is much larger. The journal contains entries such as the following, and I quote, March 11, 1953, President McKay discussed with me the April conference program for mission presidents. Thursday, March 19th, Joseph Fielding Smith asked that I get one of the brethren to illustrate handling of Saturday night missionary conferences. I believe that Spencer W. Kimball or Marquis e. Peterson should take care of it. Thursday, March 26, <laughs> President McKay told an interesting story. He said a farmer had a large tract of land. When he grew old, it became too much for him. He had a family of boys. He called the boys around him and told them they would have to carry the load. The father rested, but one day he walked out into the field. The boys told him to go back. They did not need his help. He said, My shadow on this farm is worth more than the labor of all of you. <laughs> President McKay said that the father in the story represented President Stephen L. Richards, who was ill but whose contribution and friendship President McKay valued so highly. 
I quote, Friday, April 3, 1953, attended temple meeting with general authorities and mission presidents from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. More than 30 mission presidents spoke, all wanting more missionaries, all making good progress. Tuesday, April 14th, President Richards at office had a pleasant visit with him. He appears tired and weak. I feel he has been preserved by the Lord for a great purpose. Monday, April 20th, 1953, had an interesting visit with Henry D. Moyle of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. July 15, 1953, Albert E. Bowen, member of the Council of the Twelve, died after more than a year of serious illness. Another of my friends has gone. I got to know him well. He was a wise and steady man, could never be rushed and was never in a rush, extremely deliberate, a man of uncommon wisdom, a man of great and simple faith. The old wise heads are passing on. They were my friends. In my brief time, I have seen many of the great men of the Church come and go. Most of them I have worked with and known intimately. Time has a way of erasing their memory. Another five years, and such names as Merrill, Whitsow, Bowen, all powerful figures, will be forgotten by all but a few. A man must get his satisfaction from his work each day, must recognize that his family may remember him, that he may count with the Lord. But beyond that, small will be his monument among the coming generations." End of quotation. And so it goes. I read it only to illustrate the remarkable relationship I had as a young man with members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. During my years, I have also walked among the impoverished and poor of the earth and shared with them my love, my concern, and my faith. I have associated with men and women of privilege and stature from many parts of the earth. Through these opportunities, I hope I have made at least a small difference. When I was a young man, a mere boy of eleven, I received a patriarchal blessing from a man I had never seen before and never saw thereafter. It is a remarkable document, a prophetic document. It is personal, and I will not read extensively from it. However, it contains this statement, quote, The nations of the earth shall hear thy voice and be brought to a knowledge of the truth by the wonderful testimony which thou shalt bear. When I was released from my mission in England, I took a short trip on the continent. I had borne my testimony in London. I did so in Berlin and again in Paris and later in Washington, D.C. I said to myself, that I had borne my testimony in these great capitals of the world and had fulfilled that part of my blessing. 
That proved to be a mere scratching of the surface. Since then, I have lifted my voice on every continent, in cities large and small, all up and down from north to south and east to west across this broad world, from Cape Town to Stockholm, from Moscow to Tokyo to Montreal, in every great capital of the world. It is all a miracle. Last year, I asked members of the Church throughout the world to again read the Book of Mormon. Thousands, even hundreds of thousands, responded to that challenge. The Prophet Joseph said in 1841, I told the Brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Accepting the truth of this statement, I think something remarkable must have happened to the people of this Church. They were observed reading the Book of Mormon while riding the bus, while eating lunch, while in the doctor's office, waiting room, and in scores of other situations. I trust and hope that we have drawn closer to God because of the reading of this book. Last December, it was my privilege, together with many of you, to honor the Prophet Joseph on the 200th anniversary of his birth. With Elder Ballard, I was at his birthplace in Vermont while this great conference center was filled with Latter-day Saints and the word was carried by satellite transmission across the world in tribute to the beloved prophet of this great Latter-day work. And so I might go on. I apologize again for speaking in a personal vein. However, I do so only as an expression of appreciation and gratitude for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All of this coming to pass because of the place in which the Lord has put me. My heart is overwhelmed with gratitude and love. To repeat, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I trust that you will not regard what I have said as an obituary. Rather, I look forward to the opportunity of speaking to you again in October. Now, in conclusion, I hope that all of you will remember that on this Sabbath day you heard me bear my witness that this is God's holy work. The vision given the Prophet Joseph in the Grove of Palmyra was not an imaginary thing. It was real. It occurred in the broad light of day. Both the Father and the Son spoke to the boy. He saw them standing in the air above him. He heard their voices. He gave heed to their instruction. It was the resurrected Lord who was introduced by his Father, the great God of the universe. For the first time in recorded history, both the Father and the Son 
appeared together to part the curtains and open this the last and final dispensation, the dispensation of the fullness of times. The Book of Mormon is all that it purports to be, a work recorded by prophets who lived anciently and whose words have come forth to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. The priesthood has been restored under the hands of John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John, and all the keys and authority pertaining to eternal life are exercised in this Church. Joseph Smith was and is a prophet, the great prophet of this dispensation. The Church which carries the name of the Redeemer is true. I leave this testimony, my witness, and my love for each of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last year, at the invitation of a prophet, millions read the Book of Mormon. Millions benefited. For each of us, there were blessings of obedience, and most of us also grew in knowledge and testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom this book is a witness. Many other things were learned, but what was learned depended on the reader. What we get from a book, especially a sacred text, is mostly dependent on what we take to its reading in desire and readiness to learn and in attunement to the light communicated by the Spirit of the Lord. One of the things I learned in this most recent reading of the Book of Mormon was how much God loves all of His children in every nation. In the first chapter, Father Lehi praises the Lord whose power and goodness and mercy are over all the inhabitants of the earth. Again and again, the Book of Mormon teaches that the gospel of Jesus Christ is universal in its promise and effect, reaching out to all who ever live on the earth. Here are some examples quoted directly from that book. The Atonement was prepared from the foundation of the world for all mankind, which ever were since the fall of Adam, or who ever shall be. And because of the redemption of man, which came by Jesus Christ, all men are redeemed. He suffereth the pains of all, both men, women, and children, and he suffereth this, that the resurrection might pass upon all men. Hath he commanded any that they should not partake of his salvation? Nay, but he hath given it free for all men, and all men are privileged, the one like unto the other, and none are forbidden. We also read that his blood atoneth for the sins of those who have died not knowing the will of God concerning them or who have ignorantly sinned. Similarly, the blood of Christ atoneth for little children. These teachings that the resurrecting and cleansing power of the atonement is for all 
contradict the assertion that the grace of God saves only a chosen few. His grace is for all. These teachings of the Book of Mormon expand our vision and enlarge our understanding of the all-encompassing love of God and the universal effect of His Atonement for all men everywhere. The Book of Mormon teaches that our Savior inviteth all the children of men to come unto Him and partake of His goodness, and He denieth none that come unto Him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and He remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. He inviteth them all. We understand male and female. We also understand black and white, which means all races. But what about bond and free? Bond, the opposite of free, means more than slavery. It means being bound in bondage to anything from which it is difficult to escape. Bond includes those whose freedom is restricted by physical or emotional afflictions. Bond includes those who are addicted to some substance or practice. Bond surely refers to those who are imprisoned by sin, encircled about by what another teaching of the Book of Mormon calls the chains of hell. Bond includes those who are held down by traditions or customs contrary to the commandments of God. Finally, bond also includes those who are confined within the boundaries of other erroneous ideas. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that we preach to liberate the captives. Our Savior inviteth all to come unto Him and partake of His goodness. He denieth none that come unto Him, and all are alike unto God. The children of God in all nations have His promise that He will manifest Himself to them. The Book of Mormon tells us, He manifesteth Himself unto all those who believe in Him by the power of the Holy Ghost, yea, unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, working mighty miracles, signs, and wonders among the children of men according to their faith. Note that these promised manifestations of the Lord are to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Today we are seeing the fulfillment of that promise in every nation where our missionaries are permitted to labor, even among peoples who we have not previously associated with Christianity. For example, we know of many cases where the Lord has been manifesting Himself to men and women in the nation of Russia, so recently released from the long grip of godless communism. While reading critical or mocking articles about Mormons, two different Russian men felt a strong impression to search out our meeting places. Both met missionaries and joined the Church. A medical doctor in a village in Nigeria had a dream in which he saw his good friends speaking to a congregation. Intrigued, he traveled to his friend's village on a Sunday and was astonished to find exactly what he had seen in his dream—a congregation, called a ward, being taught by his friend who was their bishop. 
Impressed with what he heard in repeated visits, he and his wife were taught and baptized. Two months later, over 30 others in their village had also joined the church, and their clinic had become the meeting place. A man I met from northern India had never even heard the name of Jesus Christ until he saw it on a calendar in the shop of a shoemaker. The Spirit led him to conversion in a Protestant church. Later, during a visit to a distant college town, he saw an advertisement for an American group called the BYU Young Ambassadors. During their performance, an inner voice told him to go into the lobby after the program, and a man in a blue blazer would tell him what to do. In this way, he obtained a Book of Mormon, read it, and was converted to the restored gospel. He has since served as a missionary and as a bishop. A little girl in Thailand felt a memory of a loving Father in heaven. As she grew older, she would often pray and counsel with him in her heart. In her early twenties, she met our missionaries. Their teachings confirmed the loving, personal feelings for God she remembered from her childhood. She was baptized and served a full-time mission in Thailand. Only 5% of the people in Cambodia are Christians. A family in that country was searching for the truth. While their 11-year-old son was riding his bicycle, he saw some men in white shirts and ties showing someone a picture and asking who it was. He felt he should stop. As he watched, he was prompted to say, That is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he came to save man. Then he rode away. It took the missionaries a month to find him and his family. <laughs> Today, the father is a counselor in the mission presidency. Last June, a family of five visited the open house for a new chapel in Mongolia. As the father walked through the door, a powerful force went through his body, a feeling of peace he had never experienced before. Tears flowed. He asked the missionaries what that amazing feeling was and how he could feel it again. Soon the entire family was baptized. These are only a few examples. There are thousands more. The Book of Mormon also teaches that the great Creator died for all men, that all men might become subject unto Him. Being subject to our Savior means that if our sins are to be forgiven through His Atonement, we must comply with the conditions He has prescribed, including faith, repentance, and baptism. The fulfillment of these conditions depends on our desires, our choices, and our actions. He cometh into the world that he may save all men if they will hearken unto his voice. The Lord provides a way for all his children, and he desires that each of us come unto him. In the closing chapter of the Book of Mormon, Moroni pleads, Come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness, 
And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. The Bible tells us how God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him that through him all families or nations of the earth would be blessed. What we call the Abrahamic covenant opens the door for God's choicest blessings to all of his children everywhere. The Bible teaches that if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The Book of Mormon promises that all who receive and act upon the Lord's invitation to repent and believe in his Son become the covenant people of the Lord. This is a potent reminder that neither riches nor lineage nor any other privileges of birth should cause us to believe that we are better one than another. Indeed, the Book of Mormon commands, Ye shall not esteem one flesh above another, or one man shall not think himself above another. The Bible teaches that some of Abraham's descendants would be scattered into all the kingdoms of the earth, among all nations, and from one end of the earth even unto the other. The Book of Mormon affirms this teaching, declaring that the descendants of Abraham would be scattered upon all the face of the earth and among all nations. The Book of Mormon adds to our knowledge of how our Savior's earthly ministry reached out to all of his scattered flock. In addition to his ministry in what we now call the Middle East, the Book of Mormon records his appearance and teachings to the Nephites on the American continent. There he repeated that the Father had commanded him to visit the other sheep which were not of the land of Jerusalem. He also said that he would visit others who had not as yet heard his voice. As prophesied centuries earlier, the Savior told his followers in the Americas that he was going to show himself to these lost tribes of Israel, for they are not lost unto the Father, for he knoweth whither he hath taken them. The Book of Mormon is a great witness that the Lord loves all people everywhere. It declares that he shall manifest himself unto all nations. Know ye not that there are more nations than one, the Lord said through the prophet Nephi? Know ye not that I, the Lord your God, have created all men, and that I remember those who are upon the isles of the sea, and I, that I rule in the heavens above and in the earth beneath? And I bring forth my word unto the children of men, yea, even upon all the nations of the earth. Similarly, the prophet Alma taught that the Lord doth grant unto all nations of their own tongue, nation and tongue to teach his word, yea, in wisdom all that he seeth fit that they should have. The Lord not only manifests himself to all nations, he also commands that they write his words. Know ye not that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God, that I remember one nation like unto another? Wherefore I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. 
For I command all men that they shall write the words which I speak unto them. For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto all the nations of the earth, and they shall write it. Furthermore, the Book of Mormon teaches that all of these groups will have the writings of the others. We conclude from this that the Lord will eventually cause the inspired teachings He has given to His children in various nations to be brought forth for the benefit of all people. This will include accounts of the visit of the resurrected Lord to what we call the lost tribes of Israel and His revelations to all the seed of Abraham. The finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls shows one way this can occur. When new writings come forth, and according to prophecy they will, we hope they will not be treated with the rejection some applied to the Book of Mormon because they already had a Bible. As the Lord said through a prophet in that book, And because that I have spoken one word, ye need not suppose that I cannot speak another. For my work is not yet finished, neither shall it be until the end of man. Truly the gospel is for all men everywhere, every nation, every people. All are invited. We live in the day foretold when righteousness is sent down out of heaven and truth out of the earth to sweep the earth as with a flood and to gather out the elect from the four quarters of the earth. The Book of Mormon has come forth to remind us of the covenants of the Lord, to the convincing of all that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations. I add this, my testimony of him and his mission, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some months ago, I rode in the car with two courageous senior sister missionaries. They were determined to find a ward member's apartment in the heart of an inner-city neighborhood in the eastern United States. As I sat in the back seat holding my breath, the car's guidance system regularly blared, Wrong turn! Wrong turn! Undaunted, the missionary reading the map just kept suggesting way after way through the maze of city streets until finally we found the home of the sister whom they had promised to teach how to read and write. In their actions and attitudes, these remarkable sisters embodied something that is much more than a reflection of their mortal years, they demonstrated true spiritual maturity. Helaman, the great Book of Mormon prophet, named his sons Nephi and Lehi after their forebears, and they began to grow up unto the Lord. Young or older, all of us must do the same. 
This idea of growing up unto the Lord is a compelling one. Unlike the process of growing up physically, we will not mature spiritually until we choose, as the Apostle Paul phrased it, to put away childish things. Daily prayer and scripture study, adherence to commandments and to covenants made at baptism and in the temple are at the core of growing up unto the Lord. We learn to walk in His ways as we do what draws us closer to Heavenly Father and as we teach our children and others to do the same. We put away childish things as we choose to become Christ-like and serve others as He would have us do. When the Church was organized in this dispensation, the Lord explained that those who shall be received by baptism into His Church would be, in part, those willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve Him to the end. That means remaining steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works each day of our lives. Today, as the Church grows in 170 nations throughout the earth, determined service to others, even in difficult circumstances, is required of those who truly desire to grow up unto the Lord. This expansion of the Church means many of us will have opportunities to serve those who are new converts. I participated in a memorable example of such determined service to those who are new to the gospel when I accompanied those dedicated sister missionaries, one a widow close to 80 years and the other a single parent in her 60s who would not be deterred by wrong turns. I also witnessed another example of it in that same ward. This ward is comprised of members of many ages from a variety of countries, all with varying economic circumstances and Church experience. A number of those with the most Church experience are busy graduate student couples with demanding schedules and young families. What I saw was a young mother serving as a visiting teaching mentor to newer converts in the ward. While her husband cared for their baby, she enthusiastically modeled loving watch care to two African sisters. This watch care involved teaching these sisters not only how to function in a new country, but also how to adapt to their new religion. Through her example, she taught these African sisters how the Lord would have us serve each other. The words of the Apostle Paul tenderly describe what I saw in this visiting teaching mentor's actions towards these new converts. We were gentle among you, being affectionately desirous of you, willing to have imparted not the gospel of God only, but also 
our own souls because ye were dear unto us. With each visit, the young mentor brought good cheer, a gentle helping hand, and the visiting teaching message. In time, together, the sisters prepared the visiting teaching message to share in other sisters' homes. Assessing needs, giving on-the-spot service as they went, they became true Relief Society sisters committed to lifting, comforting, and encouraging one another. I doubt I will ever hear the phrase, hearts knit together in unity and love, that I won't think of those three happy, loving women, demonstrating through their determined service to others what it means to grow up unto the Lord. Besides steadfast, determined service, another way we choose to grow up unto the Lord is through our willingness to press forward in faith, even when we don't quite know what to do. Consider Nephi's account of being commanded to build a ship. He recounted the circumstance. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou shalt construct a ship after the manner which I shall show thee. And I said, Lord, whither shall I go that I may find ore to molten that I may make tools? Nephi did not question the task to be done. Rather, in this situation, he evidenced, as he had in others, this mature spiritual insight. And thus we see that the commandments of God must be fulfilled. And if it so be that the children of men keep the commandments of God, he doth nourish them and strengthen them and provide means whereby they can accomplish the thing which he has commanded them. In short, Nephi looked for a resolution rather than at the roadblocks because he knew He knew that in this process of growing up unto the Lord, God could and would help him fulfill every commandment he received. In that same inner-city ward, I observed a similar type of faith in the gentle, loving care of a bishop who wasted no time despairing over the vast needs of an ever-growing number of new converts Rather, he pressed forward by rallying the more experienced members of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood quorums to help prepare new converts from Africa and Latin America for their priesthood responsibilities. The newer brethren were taught how to hold the trays while passing the sacrament, how to kneel and reverently bless the bread and water. Their more seasoned, often younger brethren practiced along with them the words of the sacramental prayers so they would feel confident in giving them. Then together all the brethren discussed the sacred nature of this important priesthood ordinance. We've all had experiences where we've had to demonstrate our determination to serve others and our willingness to press forward in faith. When my husband telephoned to tell us 
or to tell me that our mission call had been changed to a challenging assignment in Africa, I responded, I can do that. I think I can do that. I demonstrated by my words my commitment to move forward in faith, trusting once again that the Lord would help me. I was showing my willingness to grow up unto the Lord. As that faithful bishop, those dedicated sisters, and I might attest, in this ongoing process of growing up unto the Lord, we will be asked to do all we can, in some cases even more than we know how to do. The challenges may be formidable and the route sometimes unknown. But inevitable wrong turns notwithstanding, those who strive to be truly Christ-like with steadfast determination to serve others and a willingness to press forward in faith can come to echo this grand spiritual truth shared by Nephi as he continued his shipbuilding. And I did pray oft unto the Lord, wherefore the Lord showed unto me great things. To be shown great things, what a gift, what a blessing to those who have chosen to grow up unto the Lord. May ours be lives of gentle, loving, steadfast spiritual maturity, I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.